The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Oscar Edmondson and I'm joined today by Kate Andrews and Michael Simmons. So this week we've had some interesting developments in the public COVID-19 inquiry, uh, which we thought we'd discuss on this Saturday Shots. But first, Michael, I thought it would be a good idea to remind listeners exactly what this inquiry is, its its sort of scope and uh, why it's been set up. So the inquiry is looking into um, how prepared the country and the government were for COVID, what decisions we made in COVID and how COVID and the lockdowns um, affected different people in society. It's split into six modules and the module that they're looking in at the moment is called Core UK Decision Making and Political Governance. Now, from my watching of some of the hearings, that section can really be boiled down to why didn't we lock down harder and sooner? That's kind of the vibe of uh, this module. And this week specifically, they've been mostly speaking to people involved with SAGE and a lot of the people involved with SPYMO. And SPYMO were the modelling group, which had some of the names that you'll be familiar with, such as Neil Ferguson, who produced the models that essentially led to the country locking down. So that's what the inquiry is looking at at the moment. Great. And Kate, Can you maybe take us through some of maybe the big revelations that we've had so far? Well, I I think probably the biggest moment this week was Ferguson's testimony, in which you had questioning that had a lot to do with his own personal response to the weeks leading up to the pandemic, but also what I found much more interesting, questions about his kinds of communication with government. Now, there have been a lot of complaints we've heard from different people this week that it was difficult to communicate with government, but it's clear that Ferguson decided that he was going to have that direct line, and and he's questioned about some of the emails that he was sending to Number 10, and we discovered that he did take it upon himself to send those emails because he thought the government wasn't taking this seriously enough. Now, once you have someone like Ferguson, who was producing these models, putting in your inbox, I expect four to 6,000 people at the peak of this to be dying a day, you essentially set up the government to make the harshest decisions possible because goodness forbid those numbers are reached. You know, we look at other countries like Sweden, which made different decisions. And when it comes to excess deaths, did better than we did, did better than their neighbors did. But at the time when you have those numbers in your inbox, it's, it's near impossible not to act on them. And I think we are learning about what that relationship looked like, you know, for, for some modelers and for some scientists, it was clearly, they thought, thought it was very difficult to get in touch with ministers. For people like Ferguson, they made sure that they had that direct line and were learning about the extent to which they went to make sure that their models, I think, were essentially prioritized, despite big questions, which maybe Michael can dig into a bit about the assumptions behind those models. Yeah, I think um, the, the weird thing about um, Ferguson's kind of questioning is the way that the in- inquiry KC uh, went around it was essentially in this sort of two and a half, three hour evidence session. The whole thing was basically around this narrative that Ferguson had somehow not raised the alarm or, you know, hadn't hadn't warned government and warned the public enough. And as much as, you know, people have different criticisms for what Neil Ferguson did during the pandemic, I think saying that, you know, the man that was on the Today programme saying we were all going to die, you can't really say that he didn't raise the alarm. 
But the inter more interesting bits of his evidence were the sort of 10 or 20 minutes out of that time that they did look at specific things with the modelling. And what kind of came out for me there was two key questions. One was this question about kind of self-regulated behaviour response, the idea that as we ended up seeing in Omicron and in, in more so the pandemic, that um, if the public see, you know, rising deaths in Italy, they get the case numbers reported to them, they will start to moderate their behaviour and maybe they'll just accept guidance as opposed to kind of laws. And Ferguson was asked about that, what, you know, was that factored into modelling? And he essentially said no and that... Back in 2006, he'd even written a paper that he brought up at the inquiry that said this was an issue with modelling, that there wasn't modelling on, you know, self-regulated behaviour response. So that was one part that I thought they should have gone into more, but they kind of skimmed over. The other part that um, they briefly went into when a, a different lawyer representing children's rights came along, they kind of said, what was done to think about side effects where, you know, was that looked at, the costs of these measures, what they were going to do to education, what they were going to do to wider health. And Neil Ferguson, and, and not just him, the kind of other modellers that have spoke, have basically given the answer that it wasn't done because nobody was asked to do it. They said they had very narrow requests from the government through SAGE and they just answered those questions. But when you look at some of the emails that came out in the evidence, when clearly they were going above and beyond what was actually asked of them, you do have to ask, they could have done that. Yeah, I mean, this is it, is that, that these people were given such incredible levels of power during this period of time. They were making decisions based on what they thought was a priority. It seems completely reasonable, as you say, Michael, because they were going above and beyond to ask why they focused in on certain things, not, for example, the knock-on effect of having cancer patients miss their appointments and having children not show up to school. Um, you know, you can you can be sympathetic and say at the time, especially before we really knew what this virus was, that there was one show in town, that show was COVID and they had to respond to it and everything else came secondary. But, you know, it would be nice in this inquiry to hear some people actually say things like that rather than imply that, oh, well, I simply wasn't asked to do it. And this is a story that is emerging from the COVID inquiry. Ministers were desperate for modelers and for the scientists to tell them what to do. The modelers and scientists were desperate not to have to give advice about what to do because nobody wanted to be wrong. And we ended up with this very strange result where very disproportionate decisions were often made, but nobody's being held accountable for them. It's as if they're desperate to pass the buck. And, and Michael writes a great piece for Coffee House this week where he compares what Professor Mark Woolhouse said when he was giving testimony. He actually highlighted the extent to which lockdowns were, I think he says, unsustainable and not as effective as, as claimed. Whereas you could tell that Ferguson was just really trying to defend um, the idea that he didn't step over the line, that he wasn't too close to government, even though they do now have those emails in which he gets directly in touch. Michael, I haven't seen Ferguson talking much about the negative effects of lockdown, but there might be some small defense of him here. Well, on that point, this was actually one big surprise to me in that not so much in his spoken evidence, but he supplied, I think, 105 pages of written evidence and there yeah. was various emails as well. And actually, in Ferguson's defense, at the very, very start of COVID, when it was the government was discussing, discussing it in sort of February, March, 
Ferguson actually raised some concerns in these internal emails, more so than some of his colleagues, saying that this was going to cause months of damage. Um, you know, had that been factored in, I think Ferguson also said that he didn't think this was actually going to work. The public wouldn't put up with it. But then quickly he changes into the Ferguson that we came to know for the pandemic, which was obviously, he doesn't want to be called this, but, you know, Professor Lockdown. And what he said changed it for him was when he saw that lockdown was accepted in China, that he thought, okay, we can do that in Britain. But there's still bits missing in those emails where there does seem to be this bit where there was a brief period right at the start about the debate about the kind of the costs of lockdown. No modelling as we've discussed, but just, just general discussion about it. And then something kind of happens in March where that just goes away. And then it's really not until much later in the pandemic that anyone discusses these points again. And Kate, speaking of labels that perhaps people won't uh, won't want, Rishi Sunak hasn't really come out of this especially well, has he? Well, um, I wouldn't go... I, I'm not sure I would say that, Oscar. I, I think he has come out of it pretty well. It depends on who you ask. And, and one label he was given was Dr. Death, we've learned, by Professor Dame Angela McLean, who was the then Chief Scientific Advisor to the Ministry of Defence. And when Rishi Sunak was launching Eat Out to Help Out in September 2020, apparently in some WhatsApp messages, she was referring to him as Dr. Death, i.e. this is going to kill a lot of people. I don't think the evidence is really borne out on that. But... Rishi Sunak was well aware that people were suggesting these pretty horrible things behind his back. He did an interview for The Spectator during the leadership election last year, The Lockdown Files, which we publish as a cover for the magazine, uh, talking about what he saw inside government during the pandemic. He was absolutely in the minority group of ministers and MPs who, from the very start of this, was recognizing the trade-offs that were going to be involved. That's obvious, right? He was in charge of the Treasury. He saw what was happening with money printing. He was warning about inflation before almost anybody else was at the start of 2021. So he was looking at the economic ramifications, but I think he was also pretty savvy to what was going to happen to the health service, what was going to happen to education, what was going to happen to mental health, and all these other things. So while some label that Dr. Death, I suspect, not a nice label, not a nice thing to say, but I think that the the obvious spin, the more positive spin on that is, is, is someone who was talking about trade-offs. And if we go back to 2020, and gosh, I hate to do it, but nobody wanted to talk about trade-offs. There were, you know, I think that, again, this magazine was also in a minority of places that really wanted to look into what was happening here. We were following excess deaths so closely. When Michael joined The Spectator and started getting graphs online, those are, those are some of our first graphs in the data hub because we were seeing what was happening at home. We were seeing the number of deaths go up spectacularly. And there were really big questions to be asked about whether or not the, the response was proportionate. But if you said things like that, especially if you were in government, you know, they would label you some pretty awful stuff. And uh, Michael, so we've, we've covered the sort of fraught communication between government and the modellers, but the scientists also disputed the way that government have been communicating with the public throughout the pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so there was um, various people um, gave evidence as well. And one person was Lucy Yardley, who's the co-chair of SPY-B, which is a sort of behavioural group ad advising SAGE, or kind of the, I think some people call them the nudge unit. And basically, 
they thought that the the messaging was kind of changing too often. If you remember back to those press conferences where they had the you know the the yellow and red and green banners on the front of the lectern, they say were saying that the the messages were changing too often for it to become confusing for the public. They seem to have a particular issue when stay at home changed to stay alert. There was lots of you know back and forth about this and how it wasn't reflecting um you know reflecting what they felt the scientific advice was. I think this played into a wider thing where the a problem not just with the scientific advisors but with all parts of government is everyone seemed to become siloed or at least think that they were just in a silo and no one was working kind of across the, the across the whole scene so this is one of the issues that when they when there was the you know we talked earlier about how Ferguson thought that the public would not accept a lockdown and other people thought public accept a lockdown. There was other scientists who just thought, well, surely the government is doing things to get the messaging ready to you know lead the public into these kind of more um, extreme measures. So I think there just this seems to be one of the things coming out that there just was no joined up communication strategy or not one that the sage advisors felt they were involved with. And just one final question, possibly to both of you. This is this is going to be a long, drawn-out, protracted inquiry. What are some of the things that, that you're hoping that we get answers to? The hopeful side of me wants to discover what the many assumptions were behind so many of these models that were being do- produced throughout the pandemic, right up to the end when we were dealing with Omicron, and there were loud shouts to shut down for a second Christmas. If I'm being a bit more negative... I fear we're going to learn that there weren't uh, many different assumptions behind these models. That is something that we started to expose again during Omicron, that numbers were sort of being put on a, on a spreadsheet with very few uh, meaningful assumptions behind them. And, and scenarios, ministers were not being presented with different possible outcomes, depending on you know all, all different a myriad of factors. And I, I fear we are going to learn for the better part of two years, that lockdowns were happening time and time again, that tears were being brought in, that pandemic was being brought in, all the rest of it, based on really, really faulty and and not especially rigorous assumptions. I suppose the only worse scenario is that we don't find these things out. And I think the, the, the length of the COVID inquiry is really problematic. I think, you know, a lot of people who should be held accountable will be long out of power by the time we, we know all these details. And I think there's a, a desperation on many people's parts to prove that we just needed to lock down sooner. I want to know every single time that we locked down or brought in restrictions, what was the basis behind it? Who was giving the green light? Who was asking the right questions? And who wasn't asking any questions at all? I, I agree with you, Kate. I, I think um, specifically on modelling, we need almost a whole section of the inquiry, you know, just on modelling, on these assumptions, lifting kind of the veil over this this kind of industry or part of science. I think people don't realise how many other areas, you know, modelling and potentially faulty modelling, it kind of affects our lives. The Bank of England's inflation forecasts that have often been wrong, as you know, Kate has pointed out many times, is partly because of faulty modelling. Rishi Sunak's smoking ban, some of the evidence for that is on a model where all of the four scenarios it uses just I take as the base assumption that it will work. So, so many parts of our lives are affected by these mathematical models that the wider public just isn't told anything about. So I would like to see more, more of that. But Michael, just one final, final question. Is faulty modelling better than no modelling at all? Well, I think there's a debate and, you know, you would lean towards saying more 
data is better um, better than less. But there's um, this essayist, um, Talib, and he said when talking about a financial risk model, which is partly why we had the um, financial crash, he said that you're worse off relying on misleading information than on not having any information at all. If you give a pilot an altimeter that is sometimes defective, he will crash the plane. Give him nothing and he will look out the window. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think if ministers had looked out the window in March 2020, they would have noticed that a lot of people weren't in the street, they weren't on the tube, and perhaps they might have thought, all right, well, people are staying home. We are going to issue guidance. We're going to issue support, but perhaps we're not going to send the cops after you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kate. And thank you very much for listening.